Hello and welcome to another edition of Betting People. This week's guest is best known for his expertise when it comes to bat and ball because I'm joined by betting.betfair cricket correspondent and published author Ed Hawkins. Thank you very much, Ed, for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me, William. So in this episode, we're going to go through Ed's background, some exciting projects he's working on, and of course, his mastery of the greatest game. I speak, of course, of test <laughs> cricket, although other formats will be given attention and analytical detail. But first things first, um, Ed, uh, how did you start taking an interest in betting? Well, I grew up in betting, really. My dad was a horse racing correspondent for The Guardian for almost 30 years. So... Um, you know, it was part of it was a part of my childhood, and you know, often I'd wake up in the morning. My dad would wake me up, and he'd say, "Come on, out of bed, banger today!" And I'd be let off school, and I'd be going racing with my dad, and I'd learn about betting that way. Um, I'd go all around the country with him sometimes, instead of going to school, um, which uh, my my parents' um, priorities when it came to education was perhaps perhaps questionable, but you might argue that you can learn an awful lot uh, in terms of maths when um, you're at Toaster on a Tuesday afternoon or, or at Plumpton or something like that, and you're trying to work out how much you get back from your pocket money from an 11 to 2 chance. And I spent a lot of the time in the press box as well, um, and that was a great English lesson, listening to people craft their copy, learning new swear words to impress my uh, school friends when I did go back to class um, so it was a real um, rich betting experience growing up it was it, it was very sport dominated it was horse racing it was cricket and it was football uh, in that order probably uh, because of the way the seasons went and because horse racing obviously all year round so it was really uh, a um, an incredible childhood of just sport and betting. That's all. That's all I knew, really. Um, so just that's fascinating. I want to dig into that. Um, but I think I'd be given uh, quite an earful if I didn't ask. Um, you know, how did you in the end? Um, I mean, obviously we now got into racing, but how did your particular love of cricket come to pass? Was it? very much sort of in the same way did you go to county games for example or yeah we went to county games we were big Gloucestershire fans um and that's lapsed now actually probably because mainly because of the work that I do um it's best not to have any bias to any teams or players in this business but big Gloucestershire fans would go and watch Gloucester play um and used to watch people like Courtney Walsh uh, Sid Lawrence Bill Athey who's a hero of mine um, I can't work out why because I, I often go through his record. Uh, he never seemed to score any runs, certainly, certainly not for England anyway. Um, but I don't know why my dad was so um, impressed by Bill. I think he had a great cover drive, Bill Athley. Uh, and that was, one of the, that was one of the things that my dad would rate highly, a cover drive. If he had a cover drive, we were all right. Um, so, yeah, we went all around the country watching Gloucestershire. Uh, we didn't go to test matches or one-day internationals. Uh, we didn't go to international cricket. I only actually started going to international cricket when I started working um, in cricket. Um, but I kind of fell into um, cricket writing, I suppose, if that's what the sort of the question was, uh, because mm. I wanted to be a football writer. Um, I was obsessed by football. Horse racing, going into horse racing wasn't really my, my thing. I kind of, it was, I suppose it was a bit of a, a rebellion um, in some respect, like kind of turned off uh, horse racing in sort of late teens. I mean, most people paint their walls black, don't they? Or, you know, get into questionable music. My sort of rebellion was not being so interested in, um, in National Hunt anymore. So um, I wanted to be a football writer um, and I ended up working at a newspaper called Sport First, which is defunct now. And this was this is more than 20 years ago, I think. And it was um, the first national sports newspaper. Uh, and they basically didn't have anybody to write about cricket. So I, I stuck my hand up because, um, you know, I still love the game. and hadn't really considered writing about it. And that's how I 
how I got into it, uh, really. And then when Sport First went bust, I think there was a job going at the Racing Post, which I applied for. I don't think I've sort of wrote off um, on spec. And um, I joined the sports betting desk there um, and worked under you know, Bruce Millington, Paul Keeley, um, and alongside Kevin Pauline, Steve Palmer, people like that. And that was another incredible education. Yeah, I was going to say, um, what were some of the key lessons you learned from being alongside great names such as those? Uh, well, I think Bruce always used to say, don't tell me what is, don't tell me what you think is going to happen, tell me what is going to happen. Uh, Kevin Pulling, well, every, every piece he wrote was, you know, studied with, you know, mm. kernels, kernels of betting advice, which you, which you shouldn't forget. Um, you know, always bet with um, money you can afford to lose. Um, You've got to understand why the price is wrong. You've got to know why the price is wrong rather than just saying it. I think I think that is a wrong price. And just things like that. And um, you know, learning not to bet on dogs because Paul Keeley's hunched over his screen, uh, chewing his fingernails to the bone, doing his money um, <laughs> and, and, and stuff like that. Just it was quite it was quite a environment to to work in and an environment actually which couldn't be repeated now. Um, I suspect in the modern day, it was, you know, it, it was not for the faint-hearted, the sports desk and the racing clubhouse. Um, on more sports writing notes, you've published books um, and some of them, well, they focused on different things. And we'll talk about a particular yeah. exciting project you've got coming on next. But um your most recent book, Men on Magic Carpets, was about searching the West Coast of America for a superhuman sports star. Um, tell me how the idea for that came about. I suppose it came about by my interest in really why teams um, win or lose. Uh, and that brings it back to betting um, and the day job, so to speak. Mm. Um, and trying to understand what lengths teams or franchises uh, would go to to win or lose. Uh, not to lose, to avoid defeat. Um, and um, I started looking into that and then I just I kind of stumbled across this um, group of people in, in the 50s and 60s in West Coast America who believed they could use yoga and meditation to increase the chances of um, going into a, such a deep meditative state that they could, they could sort of transcend reality and they could feel that they were flying or they could see into the future uh, or they could slow down time um, and it was called um, the uh, human potential movement and um, you know it was quite a big it was quite a big thing in the 50s and 60s and this human potential movement um, actually inspired uh, George Lucas who was a there was an advocate, there was a student of, of, of that group, um, that inspired him to start getting um, Star Wars down on pen and paper because what these people were describing or um, trying to achieve was a, was a, a Jedi master. Mm. Um, you know, it sounds, it sounds bonkers. And um, I thought, this is, this is ridiculous, this is a great story. So um, I went out to the West Coast to meet the people involved in that and they were all still alive and they're all still trying to, trying to push this, um, this method of athletes transcending uh, onto this sort of Shangri-La of the state of the mind and do extraordinary things on, on the athletics track on the tennis court, on the sports field and how it um, has infiltrated top level sport in America now. Um, uh, in particular with the Seattle Seahawks, who uh, are coached by Pete Carroll. Mm. Uh, and Pete Carroll is the number one uh, student of that era. He was taught by all those people involved in the human potential movement at the start and how he's picked and, and chosen quite carefully the methods to use to... Um, to help his players achieve those states, although he'll, he'll never admit to it. So um, I, I got to met, got to meet Pete Carroll. I got to meet lots of other bonkers people. Um, you know, golf, um, a golf teacher who, who taught his students to visualise that they were Darth Vader before they uh, 
stood up to the ball, stuff like that. Really, it is really crazy stuff. Absolutely. And um, it can be found on all good online publishers, I feel obliged to say. Yeah. Um, moving on or staying in the same subject and area, but moving on, um, I notice from a brief glance at your Twitter profile that you're currently working on a book with cricket legend and former betting people guest, nevertheless, Michael Holding. Um, what yeah. can you tell us about that at this point in time? Okay, so I first worked with Mikey on the Racing Post because I was his ghostwriter for his column. He, he did the um, mm. cricket column for a few years with the Post when I was there. Then um, after that, we did a book together, his autobiography. Uh, that was 10 years ago. Uh, that was called No Holding Back. Um, and then we just finished off a, a book um, which was born throughout by his uh, speech on Sky Sports in the summer about Black Lives Matter movement and racism. And it's called Why We Kneel, How We Rise. And it's coming out in June. And it's basically a re-education um, about racism and about why Black Lives Matter and dealing with all kinds of uh, things like um, these tropes that we get these days from, uh, from people who are trying to shoot down the movements, like saying all lives matter or you know, white privilege doesn't exist and things mm. like that and and really going into the fine detail of the history of the dehumanization of the black race and it's been um it's been a privilege to do it um and it's been an incredible lesson an incredible life lesson uh and it's been harrowing to do um because I, i'd wager most people would have absolutely no idea of um of the level of dehumanization which has gone on um, over the centuries. Mm. Um, and Mikey's voice is obviously very, very powerful. And that was proved by the way, his um, speech on Sky Sports for that first test of summer against yeah, the West Indies absolutely. went viral. Um, and also because he's considered a very reasoned, rational man, that someone who doesn't um, get overexcited or, or speak without thinking very, very carefully. But when he actually said those words, people took notice and said, huh, if Michael Holding is saying this, and if he's this passionate about it, and he's getting emotional on TV related to the Sky News piece where he, he cried about the, um, the racism that he uh, witnessed in his own family, um, then it must be something which people need, need to take seriously. So we got together and we decided, um, um, let's try and do a book. Let's, let's try and do a book about education to try and help change people's minds or um, educate people mm. <clears throat> about, about what's gone on. And we've done that through Mikey interviewing uh, world famous athletes, world famous black athletes, talking about their experiences and what can be done. And it's not a book of complaints. It's not a list of people saying this happened to me and this happened to me. It's a, it's really quite something. I don't think I can tell you who the people we've interviewed that are. I might get the rap on the wrist uh, by the publisher, but um, yeah, it's out in June with Simon and Schuster. And there's some really, really top names involved in that. And we think it can make a real difference. Absolutely. Um, when can we expect to see that out? That's going to be June. So it's just going through the final um, stages of editing now. It's been quite a rush to get it done. You know, turning around an eighty thousand word book in in less than any, in less than half a year has been hair raising, to say the <laughs> least. Um, I'll bet. Uh, so it's um, it's all it's all good, um, and I think it's going to be great. Fingers crossed, because I think it's something which deserves to do well. And I think. It, I think it's something that um, Mikey's excited about, nervous about, and I think you know he deserves a, a big hit, and he deserves people to take it take it seriously, which I'm sure they will. Absolutely, I think that's a great way to end part one of Betting People with you, Ed Hawkins. Thank you very much for your time. Stick around tomorrow. We're going to dive a bit deeper into Ed's punting methods. Thank you very much for your time, Ed. Thanks, William. Hello and welcome back to part two of Betting People with Ed Hawkins. 
Um, so in part one, we discussed a bit more of Ed's background. We're going to do the same in part two, but with a particular focus um, towards some of Ed's bedding methods and memories. But firstly, um, I do want to ask you, can you remember the first time you won something on a bet? Yeah, I think it must have been when I was about four and Corbier won the, won the national. Um, I probably had, my dad had probably put 25p on for me or something like that. Um, because most, most nationals um, we'd go up to uh, watch as a family, because as I said, my dad was a racing correspondent for The Guardian. So we'd, we'd be at um, Aintree um, with my, my brother and my mum. And, and we'd go and sit at um, Beecher's Brook. And that was in the day, William, when you could get really actually quite close um, to Beecher's um, as a spectator. You were right on the rails. And you'd have to get there about nine o'clock in the morning to get a decent position. Um, so I remember Corbier uh, winning because also we went to, went to see him come home to Jenny Pittman's in, in Lambourne. Um, and that's a memory which which sticks out. Um, so that must have been one of the first first bets I ever had. And obviously, we we'll always have a bet on the national. Uh, I remember losing on Dark Ivy in 1987. I think it's my dad tipped it in the Guardian, um, and and losing pro probably pretty much every year since then. So um, not a great record when it comes to the national, but. Um, great memories of going to watch it and particularly at Beaches Brook because obviously I was so so young and so small yeah um and you'd be sitting on the grass by the rails and you wouldn't be able to see anything and then when the race started you just hear the sound of the hooves getting slowly louder and louder and louder until suddenly there was this huge roar and these horses would all fly over the fence and be carnage and ferns flying everywhere and incredible um experience and memory and can i ask um, what was the first time or what was the first winning cricket bet you had i can't remember the first winning cricket bet i had um no i couldn't remember that but um i mean i can remember plenty of um i can remember plenty of bad bad tough losers i remember the caribbean world cup where i'd um sold sixes um because i felt that spread firms had overestimated the um the idea that the caribbean grounds was was small and um i'd also factored in the fact that against the minnows they wouldn't always the, the big teams wouldn't always be batting first so i felt the price was too high you know like a good shrewd punter that you're supposed to be the price is always too high so you always you always go low and i did uh, I did a lot of money on on that one, but um, my earliest cricket, but I I can't I couldn't possibly remember. Um, and you're known as a cricket expert now. I think it's fair to say that's how most people would know um, you here. But when did you? When did it really begin to pay for you? Was there ever a sort of a eureka moment where you thought this is the route for me? Um, cricket in, or, or basically sort of punting on and trading cricket? I think um, early on when I was at the Post, um, and I was there, I think from about 2000, 2001, I think started there, um, I realised that I had a, I suppose I had an eye for a player. Um, I knew what a good player looked like just with, with my eye, the way he batted or the way he bowled. And, and I was able to um, make money off the back of that on sort of top bat markets or top bowler markets. And also just like, lining up 11 versus 11 and, and seeing which players were, were, which teams were being overrated or underrated. Um, and also very early on learning that um, bookmakers would shorten up teams artificially because they just had players who people had heard of. And, and that, I think, is still the case now. Um, so those are the kind of first inklings that um, I felt I could do something with it. And so throughout those racing post years, I was, I was basically a 
I suppose I was most of the time I was an eye punter. I was backing on uh, teams or players who I'd seen um, a lot of and felt they were being underrated. Um, and then lastly, I moved into stats. Um, the, the statistical side of things has been quite difficult in cricket, and I'm sure we'll come to this in, in more detail later. That you know, in 2000, 2001, the ability to be able to go and look up um, all manner of weird and wonderful statistics just wasn't there. So you didn't really have much option but to be an iron player. I mean, obviously, you'd be able to find out toss bias and things like that and, and historic scorecards so you could work out likely first innings runs. But um, today, you can you can really do a deep dive on, on the data and come up with lots of uh, ways to to make cricket pay, I think. And that's probably one of the main changes I've um, seen in my sort of betting strategy. Um, I'm not an eye punter anymore. I'm not really backing people um, because of what I've seen them do. Um, it has to be statistics-based now. Would you say um, that there was a sort of point, a sort of crossover period where you suddenly saw access to this data, which you believe gave you that sort of edge, or was it sort of a more gradual process where, you know, one season, um, you know, you were going basically on, mostly on eye stuff and the next season suddenly say you had quick info um, or you had, you know, deeper databases that you could go and look at for instance, strike, yeah. um, top bat, top wicket or something like that. Yeah, um, I think the big change for me was social media. Because I, I just didn't feel comfortable with saying this guy is going to be top bat um, off the basis of you know what I'd seen him do. Mm. Um, because I, I always felt there was some there was somebody out there who could come up with a you know statistics which would blow that opinion completely out of the water and make you look a fool. Um, so that's one of the, that's the main reason why I felt well I've got to try and be not bomb proof on it, but I've got to really know. Um, this guy's record, how often um, he top scores, what is his average, not include, including not outs, you know, what does he do on a, a certain ground? And I used to do top bats or top bowlers on um, on I, as I said, and then and then I moved to um, what I what, what I called in my sort of weird um, loser way, <laughs> like the Holy Trinity. Does he have ground form? Is he in form? And does he have ground? Does he have form against the opposition? And I felt if those three things were on for a player, then that would be my edge on a top bat or top bowler. Um, and uh, you know, it's still, it still it it was profitable, but that social media um, shift where you had experts coming on, up under. Um, crawling out of rocks, underneath rocks, and being able to access all this incredible data to prove you wrong um, made me change my approach. And I think you've seen that, really seen that in football, things like expected goals and the wealth of data that is available on football now. Um, and you can't just, you can't have a lazy opinion on football anymore mm. um, because you'll be torn to shreds on Twitter. Or on, other, or on other social media platforms, others are available. So, you know, I felt I had to really try to get on top of that, um, the cricket, and be better with my data and understand more, um, just because I didn't want to be letting people down. I wanted to be, be a, really on, on top of it and across it. And I'm not saying, by the way, you know, you know I'm some sort of data god. Far from it. There are people out there who are doing amazing things like Dan Weston um, on Twitter. Give him a follow if you want to um, know a bit more about how to build a, a T20 team. Um, you know, the data that these people have got, all there's CrickViz and there's CrickViz analysis, um, which is an amazing resource as well. Um, StatsGuru has always been great. And there are other sites that you can find, mm. particularly on T20, which will really help you out to, to, to get you that edge. Um, uh, and there is an edge, I think, because I think I think bookies are a little bit slow to catch up. I think um, you know in the future we're going to see be seeing people actually run 
statistical models. If they're not doing it already, I'm sure they are. I have seen a couple of people doing it on what is going to happen mm. um, on on matches and such um, as be... quiz. Yeah, I mean, uh, quick quiz do um, expected first innings runs in tests and um, in T20, and that was something I was quite keen to look at uh, on the podcast, the Cricket Only Better podcast for betting because there is a little bit of noise with cricket punters that it's 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 just not reliable at all um so i wouldn't be i wouldn't be saying just go away and bet what cricket is saying mm. um we've got to actually work out what they're saying is is accurate but they have great data on things like how a batsman scores um against a particular bowler um, which is a godsend for a top batsman wager and it goes back to my earlier point if i see glenn maxwell and i think oh this guy's a player I think he's due for a top top bat effort, and I'm going to bet him to top score in a in a 2020 match in the Big Bash. Um, someone could turn up some data from Crickviz and say, well, actually, Glenn Maxwell has got mm. a terrible record against these three bowlers in in this match. You've tipped him. Why have you tipped him? And then then what do you do? You're the expert here because because that that's confounded me a bit. <laughs> I was also thinking about another question I wanted to ask you, but go on. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's um, it just kind of blows your edge out of the water. Your edge doesn't mm. really exist. Um, there is, you know, there's probably a point where the data actually eats itself, and you can probably find um, a statistic which will um, pin down a bit on most things. But I just felt there was a real shift, you know, five or six years ago, that um, I needed to do. I needed to really. Uh, bore down on statistics and data to do uh, to do more because I didn't want to be be having lazy opinions um, and be exposed like that. So I'd say I'd, I'd, I'd bet in a completely different way to how I started now. And that's because mm. of social media. That's because of the internet and the wealth of information which is available. Um, and I'll probably be betting in a different way if I'm still doing it in another 20 years. <clears throat> So I think you've got to complete. I've got. I think you've got to evolve as a, as a hunter, as a tipster, uh, and that would go for any uh, sport. You can't just be stuck in your ways. You've got to be willing to learn. Um, and I'm always learning. I, I wouldn't say that. Oh, I've got this thing nailed. What? Or uh, you know, I I know the game at the back of my hand because I don't. Because you've got to keep uh, pushing yourself and, and questioning things if you're going to keep doing well. Just on that note about progression, um, would you say that cricket is a better traded sport now than it was when you started out? Yeah, because of mainly because of the um, the wealth of formats available now. Well, we've got Test cricket, ODI cricket, T Twenty. We've got T Ten. We're gonna have the hundred next summer, um, and Twenty Twenty is incredible for trading and in-play betting. So, yeah, I mean, it's a um, it's a vastly changed sport um, to bet on. Mm. When I was at the Post, the biggest day of the year was the county cricket preview, uh, when the county cricket season was starting. I think we used to do, that, do about four or five pages on that. Um, I, bet you, I bet you they don't do four or five pages now. Um, and if, if someone had told me that, you know, I'd be betting on the Pakistan Super League or... Um, Indian Premier League or uh, the St Lucia T10, which was which was a, a lockdown saviour. I just thought, well, that is crazy. I mean, it's completely exploded. It's a, it's a truly global game now because of because of T20 and the stuff you need to know um, is is now you need to have a real uh, world view of, of cricket instead of the parochial view. Of county cricket and it goes back to what i was saying about betting in a completely different way mm. county cricket was a was a was a big um was a big area um to bet on because bookmakers didn't have the time or inclination or there certainly wasn't money wagered on it for them to to put all that much time or resources into it so there was always an edge on county cricket um but now county cricket is is, is irrelevant really we don't cover it on betting.bet because the interest isn't there. We're more interested in the big bash, IPL, 
you know, we're not really interested in the T20 blast either. And just on <coughs> a sort of one last note, um, all of those changes you've described, do you think in the long run it's given cricket betters of all stripes more opportunity or do you think there are sort of sometimes more pitfalls in the sense that um, it can be easy to say get distracted somebody who specialised in test or um, division one might go and strain to sort of t20 or the st louis t10s uh, do you think basically that sort of the amount of cricket on offer has made it harder to win overall or um do you think it's the opposite way around no i think it's um i think it's been easier to win overall because um there's only as i said there's only much so much time and resources um, bookmakers can put into pricing stuff up uh, and there's just so much cricket now. Um, it never stops. Cricket never mm. stops. It's, it's a it's a year-round um, job as a as a cricket tipster. So the opportunities for betting and for betting well um, are fantastic. Mm. And you know, and it's and it's and it's the same as it always was. Though, if you do your research, if you boil down and try to get as much done and really seek out that edge. Um, then you'll you'll be okay, and, and if you if you stick to your guns, you don't have lazy opinions, and um, uh, you'll be all right. I think um, so. You know, it, it's never been better for cricket cricket punters, and and that's mainly because of T20 because it's this, this franchise leagues which have proliferated around the world. Are, you know, offer some fantastic uh, value, um, and. The, the the old uh, mantra of bookmakers pricing up franchises or or teams because of they've got the big superstar players uh, too short has been a very very profitable route taking on Royal Challengers Bangalore in the Indian Premier League for example they've still never won it um, and and also understanding the value of um, bowlers in every format um, it has been really important. Uh, and it's still something which is not um, given um, the respect it, it, it should do. Bookmakers are still wowed by big bats, so you know there's a, there's a couple of strategies there or ways to think to to find help find your edges. I think that's a really interesting point upon which to end part two of bending people with Ed Hawkins. Now stick around tomorrow because we have a special surprise coming for you in part three, something we've not tried before. See you then. Hello and welcome to part three of Betting People with Ed Hawkins. Now, this is the part I've been waiting for the most. I'm very excited about this. Um, those of you who are lucky enough to know of Ed's work will know that he's a cricket expert. Those of you who may be introduced to him for the first time, um, we want to give you a look into what he does, something which we're gonna start doing more of on these betting people interviews basically um so essentially this is the first betting people masterclass now ed is going to take us through how he approaches um some of the work that he does namely things like top batsman and top bowler markets otherwise known as the first innings top wicket taker and top run scorer markets we're also going to look at how to approach test matches etc and just how ed gets to some of those conclusions so ed i believe you're going to start us off um we have some stats here for chennai test matches i believe what are those on the screen for right i guess this is where we start off if we're doing a test match we've got to first work out what the pitch is going to do uh, before we start working out what we're going to bet on i think it's the single most important thing to try to understand um, if we're betting um, on cricket and that goes across any format what is the pitch going to do is it going to be a batsman friendly pitch is it going to be a bowler friendly pitch is it going to be something in between the two uh, is it going to deteriorate as the game wears on i mean in t20 you might think that sounds uh, bonkers but um, there are venues which have bias towards chaser um, or a bias towards the team batting first. So it's just trying to um, get as much information as possible before we start building our way 
to having a bet. So in the example of the test match at Chennai, which has just gone, perhaps not a great example because, um, you know, we, we had a back-to-back tests there um, and we were able to, we knew what the pitch was going to do um, pretty much going into the second test um, because there'd been a lot of noise around it, how they'd switched the surfaces to to change the um, a soil which was going to crumble and deteriorate, which meant batting last was going to be very, very difficult. Mm. Um, um, and so from that point of view, it, that was all about listening to the news being being across quick info and websites like that, which um, often have uh, interviews with the groundsman or um, the local cricket board to find out what the pitch is going to do. So that's always a good resource. But um, what I often will start off as going on Crick Info's stats career, which you can see here. And this is basically the, the list of all innings that you can see in uh, all previous matches uh, in Chennai. And you can see the, you know, you can see the two games which have just gone there. Um, and you know, one pitfall that we have often have to deal with um, when trying to decipher a pitch um, is a lack of matches at a game at a venue. So you can see here there was um, there was a game in 2016 and 2013, and then there wasn't one until 2008, um, and that tends to get a bit um, too long ago to start making decisions about what um, what a pitch is going to be actually going to be like, um, because the you know the, the, the study sample is is too historic, and um, you know, there's no point really placing opinion on. On what pitch did in you know 2005, as you can see there with you know, that one game uh, that they played against Sri Lanka, India. So we like a nice long study sample and a nice long recent um, study sample for a pitch. Uh, really, ideally a game every year, and that's not always possible in India because they've got such a huge wealth of venues. But we're looking at these totals here mm-hmm. on the left-hand side to work out whether it's a batting wicket or it's a bowling wicket. Simple as that, and whether whether it's deteriorating um, in the fourth innings. And as you can see uh, from Chennai, in those, certainly in those last two tests, it was a pitch which was, which was best uh, to bat first on. Um, and that kind of leads me to my, one of my sort of, um, main ways of finding an edge, I think. And this go, again goes across all formats mm-hmm. is uh, the importance of the pitch and the importance of the toss. I think it's hugely important in Asia, uh, Asian subcontinent. If you're batting first, you've got an advantage. We've seen that in the two tests so far in India. Um, I'd go as far to say as you know now, um, if India have to bat second um, in Ahmedabad, and we're not going to, we don't know what that pitch is going to do, by the way, because it's a new venue, and that's really irritating. Um, I'd go suggest that India are not going to be a value bet. Um, you're certainly going to. Um, be having a mug bet if you if you bet them before the toss and and even after the toss as well if they were if they were batting second I think England likely to be a decent value price if they're batting first in this series you'll certainly be able to get a chance to to manage your position in play so that's my starting point what's the pitch doing and and what is the toss doing as well is there a toss bias at a venue so I use Crick Info Stats Guru for that in other formats like um, T20, Crick Info Stats Guru is great for ODIs, um, but it doesn't it doesn't sort you out for T20 franchise leagues. Mm. So you can try this site here, which is BigBashBoard.com. This is absolutely superb. We've got the Pakistan Super League coming up, and this is the um, profile page of a national stadium um, in Karachi, and you can see the matches that have been played here in the Pakistan Super League. And very simply, you're able to work out whether there's a toss bias here and what the first innings scores are doing. And this is a this is a venue which favours the chaser. Um, you can also look up um, the Lahore ground as well, the Gaddafi Stadium, which is which is going to show us toss bias for the chaser as well in the Pakistan Super League. So there's two important uh, points to be aware of um, with the toss bias in the Pakistan Super League coming up and it's all just about trying to get as much information as possible to make sure that you don't feel like you've had a bad bet 
that you're you're as informed as as possible. You don't want to be backing a team batting first without knowing that there's a toss bias. Once you're sat that down in front of Sky Sports watching a Pakistan Super League and the statistic comes up that I think it's eight out of the last ten at the national stadium has been won by the team chase and you bat the team batting first and you didn't check it, you're gonna feel you're gonna feel like a monk. So you know, I just think it's important to be across what the what the pitch is is doing, how many runs are going to be scored, and whether there's a um, whether there's a toss bias. And you can also check on here if this works. Um, you can go into sort of more detailed venue statistics on on this website. If I scroll down here, um, it's for example, it's telling you what the run rates are, what the average score is here, what the expected score is here. Uh, so you can really start to bore down on some data and work out what the pitch is going to do. And once you know what the pitch is going to do, you can you can translate to how the teams line up and which teams are well suited to batting first or batting second, which are poorly balanced in terms of having too many batsmen or too many bowlers. And you know, that's an important thing in, in, in every format of the game, whether it's test matches or T20. So that's kind of the starting point. Know the pitch, know the toss. Uh, so we've got our pitch info, we've got our toss info. Let's say we're going to look at the top batsman market for a first innings of a typical test. Uh, yeah. Where do we start with this? Because presumably we've already got prices, right? This has already been priced by traders. Most cricket traders are quick off the mark. And that's certainly the case with Star. So um, do you make a book sort of and try and bet it to 100%, try, try and see where it lands? compared with the odds traders or will you just go with a model or will you try and do something different I, I i imagine there are a lot of variables um not least sort of what the pitch is doing or records head-to-heads etc yeah there are there are plenty of variables i'll probably come back to that but i mean what i've got is a um i've got a sort of database which i i i, I try to keep on top of um and this is actually the big bash i don't know if you can see that william um, i can indeed so these are basically the number of times a, a batsman top scores in, in individual innings in the, in the Big Bash. And um, if we look, for example, for like um, Ben Maxwell is obviously an always a popular bet. This is the start of the 2020 tournament. Um, uh, with the start of the tournament, which has just done, just gone actually. So Maxwell, Maxwell was winning 41.6% yeah. of the time. Um, so he, he, clearly he was, he was going to be he was going to be a you know a great price um, in the big bash, and so what I would do for a test match, I'd have exactly that that data um, for how often a batsman top scored in the first innings of a test match over the last um, three years, normally, um, ideally two years, um, but because of lockdown and and COVID, those numbers have been thrown out a little bit because teams haven't played the number of tests that I'd like. So it's all about study sample. I'd really like sort of a minimum of a minimum of 10 tests before I start judging a player. And the exception I've made with that is Ollie Pope. Um, well, that is interesting to know. So I've kind of gone back to the, the eye, the, betting with the eye, because I think, I think Pope is going to be a player who is going to be a value bet for some time to come. Um, I think you're getting five to one, six to one first innings bet on Pope. He's won four out of 14, I think, at the top of my head, uh, maybe four out of 12, something like that. Um, but basically, it's asking the question, and this is something which I changed off the back of not being one to be exposed um, by someone popping up on social media saying, oh, actually, I think you'll find he only wins about 18% of the time and you're backing him at two to one. Just trying to make sure you don't feel like you've had a bad bet. Uh, a great yeah. ex example of that is Joe Root. Uh, if you speak to most people um, in, who are interested in cricket and you say to them, who's going to top score for England in the first thing? Uh, probably uh, you know, two thirds of them are going to say Joe Root because he's the best player. Um, and he is the best player. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's, he's going to be the best bet or he's certainly going to be the best bet. And you've got Root going off at two to one, and Root over the last three years wins 18% of the time. Now, I know he's absolutely terrific, Nick. Um, 
but I'm not betting. <clears throat> I'm not betting Joe Root at two to one when he's winning eighteen percent of the time. Mm. Um, so it's a very simple way of just trying to trying to find an edge and trying to find a way which bookmakers um, make a mistake. And going back to what I said in our earlier chats in parts one and two, it's players being priced on reputation rather than record. Um, and you know the antidote to the root bet is somebody like Ben Stokes, who's going to give you, I think, about three or four percent edge uh, on implied probability if he's going off at five to one in terms of how often he actually wins. Uh, Pope is another one. Moeen Ali was one. Um, sadly, I don't think we'll be seeing Moeen uh, again in an England Test team. Um, so he was he was always a, a good bet on win rate. Um, so. It's basically going through the data in the last two and three years and finding out exactly what price these people should be on how often they win. Um, and I think sort of the next step for that that you alluded to earlier is the number of filters or number of variables is to start looking at how often these people do it in, in, in certain conditions. You know, Joe Root in Asia may well have a record which makes him a value at two to one, but the sort of roadblock with that is is study sample. Are we going to get enough um, matches to rather to really form an opinion on? You can get over that sort of 10, 12 test barrier um, to start betting people uh, with root. Yes, you probably will. Um, you know, when, when he next goes to Asia again, which I'm, which I'm sure he will in his career because he's still got a long way to go. Then you'll filter that down to first innings win rates in Asia. It's good actually that you mentioned Asia because I was going to ask about whether there's data for this versus a certain country or indeed um, above or south of the equator. Um, yeah. One presumes that you would sort of do this in vice versa format for bowlers um, across all the formats. Yeah, exactly. Do exactly the same with bowlers. I think there's a really terrific edge um, on the bowling markets. Um, Ravi Ashwin, of course, is, is, a, is a guy who's in the news at the moment because of what he's done to England in this Test Match series. And um, his record was, was superb. And, you know, we ran this same check on his win rate. Mm. And he was giving us about 3 or 4% um, at, um, I think he went off about sort of 7 to 4. Um, so he was still value to bet in that second Test. You know, in the past, in, in uh, not so long ago, about two years ago in the West Indies, he didn't actually play. They didn't pick him. But, um, he still had that same same sort of win rate, but it was going off uh, three to one or 100 to 30, I think, and, and was a massive uh, value wager for top India bowler in the first innings. Um, and bowlers, because it's a market which is often dominated by um, one player, you can find that Tandler bookmakers aren't going short enough about a guy. Um, or you can, you can almost certainly find, particularly in franchise cricket or one-day cricket, uh, bookmakers pricing up bowlers on reputation. Uh, Rabada in T20 cricket for South Africa um, will often go off very, very short. And then you've got Lungi Nagidi going off 3 to 130. And the prices should be the, completely the other way around um, on how mm. often they actually win. In, in T20 cricket. Mm. Thank you very much for that. Um, <coughs> now, do you keep any ratings for teams in the same way that there might be ELO ratings? There are ELO ratings in tennis. Um, uh, odds compilers of football will have their ratings um, with places like FB Ref, um, etc. Um, Infogo, of course, they have their ratings for football teams. Do cricket teams get ratings from you um, in any arena? Um, will you use that to inform selections that you make? No, I don't, because of, in test match cricket, because the conditions are so variable, um, what England do in England is completely irrelevant to what they're going to do in um, Australia or India, um, because the ball is different, the pitch is different, the overhead conditions are completely different, and it's, it, it's difficult to... Um, decipher rating systems when you've got half of the games being completely irrelevant to um, the conditions that you're trying to bet on. So I don't do that. I don't do um, I don't do that in T20 franchise cricket or either because the, the personnel change so yeah. much. 
what I do, what I do, and I think is important in franchise cricket is um, keeping records of um, how often a team wins batting second or batting first. I think that's important. You get some bias there with teams who are really good at doing one discipline and being really terrible at another, like Sydney Sixers, who have just won the Big Bash. They're a fantastic chasing team, but they're a terrible, um, well, they're not terrible, but they used to be a poor team bowling first. So I keep on top of things like that because I think that's important when we um, when we're talking about what pitch does, what toss bias does. If you can kind of marry those three trends together, um, and you can hang your hat on a you know two point four shot in a in a franchise T mm. Twenty league, you know I think that's good to know. And I oh, you know you don't really, again you don't want to be betting on a team batting first if you don't know what their record is batting first because those bias do exist absolutely and just um sort of round this off because um it's been really really insightful and um, i've really really enjoyed it a couple of things I want to cover first of all um we've been talking about the data available when it comes to cricket um both for observers and betters um, and how much that's exposed in recent years. Um, do you make much use of expected runs and expected wicket figures? Would you consider them, say, um, as a tool you could use to inform in play betting? Uh, and also, just following on from that, um, you can, a test match, you know, generally speaking, you'll get days of play out of it, you know, um, several hours a day for four or five days um we're now about to have four bats which can be over in three hours perhaps even less if there's a particularly dominant team or a particularly quick rate of play um mm. do you have different trading styles um for those two for, for the different um formats because there's, there's a big difference between you know one day international world cup game um test game um including of course the other variables which we won't get into and then something like the st lucia t10 or the hundred yeah yeah i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't tend to trade um st lucia t10 um much uh, apart from um to taking an out price on an outsider bearing mm. in mind pitch tasks and what have you that we just we just talked about and mm. looking to trade a position from an outsider to um to favorite um a test match is a test match is 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 tricky um because you can think well i've got five days to get a position here and to get all green or what have you um and the test just gone the second test in chennai was a was, a, was an example of how tricky it can be if you don't get on the right side straight away um because india i think they went off 1.5 um and they would maybe hovered around about sort of 1.6 1.7 and then after lunch that was it the price was 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 collapsing at every session so unless you were unless you were on the money from um after the first session in a five-day test in that example you weren't you weren't able to really trade a position apart from you know taking um, you know India coming England coming from in from that thirty six to to seventeen on I think day three maybe if my memory serves that was probably the only one I can sort of think think of the only significant move which would have been um, you'd been able to take advantage of um, and there was no real no real reason for that or easy way for that. To see it happening it was just kind of if you got your timing right and so much of trading is getting your timing absolutely right and test cricket is hugely helpful for that because you have variables which um allow you to make better predictions about when the market is gonna gonna change because you've got a new ball uh, which means that the possibility of wickets have increased mm. um, but going back to that importance of knowing what a pitch does um, for a bet, whether you're going to just let it run or for a trade. An example is uh, 
as we're talking about India versus England. If England was to take that first in the third test and fourth test, um, you know, there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity for an easy trade or a smart trade, if you like, because the way the market will behave, um, if England get runs in that first innings, um, they're going well at something like 300 for five or 300 for six. The draw price um, will collapse um, because the market will expect India to see what England have got and raise them. Um, so the draw price will go through the floor because time is being taken out of the game. So if you can, if you can get an early grasp on the wicket of what it's going to do, um, looking at the statistics, looking at your data, and, and also using your eyes when you're actually watching it, um, that's the most important things to do when you're actually um, watching the game. If you're trading, you've got to you've got to watch the pitch. You've got to watch the ball actually landing on the pitch and seeing what it's doing. Um, and if you can. If you can make a prediction saying right, they're going to be runs here. I can see that these this is going to this is going to work out as a batting friendly wicket up front. Then you can make that quite simple trade that I just just talked about. And um, just on a last uh, note, um, would you have any let's say three pieces of advice? Let's say three. Actually, I'll change I'll change it again on you. Um, Six deliveries in an over. So for our last over, free do's and free don'ts of cricket betting. Uh, well, I mean, three do's. I mean, or don't. I don't know if it's either do or don't. But I mean, don't, look, don't um, bet with money you can't afford to lose. Um, and that goes for any. That goes for any sport, doesn't it, or any form of gambling? So that's very wise advice indeed. Thing. Yeah, that's the most important uh, thing to understand. Um, you know, the second thing is to do um, all the all your research on on what a pitch is going to do. Um, look at those first innings scores. Work out what a first innings average is going to be, um, and and then if you're doing it in play, it's really important to look at. Uh, what the run rate is, if you want to have an in-play bet on innings runs, look at how many runs have been scored and what rate, and then look at how many overs are left in the day. Um, look at how many bowlers um, have got to be used or have been overused and try and try to work out where the, where the run rate is going to go and how many runs are actually going to be scored. Um, so do as much research as you can on, on, on first innings runs and get an idea of what the pitch is like. Um, another important piece is, you know, the third important piece of advice would be to know what the toss is going to do. Um, is it a wicket which um, deteriorates? Does it favour the chaser? Again, this is across all formats, ODI, T20, that's really, really important. And also, um, do look at your team lineups in terms of their balance. Um, you know, who's batting at number seven or, or number eight? That's a really important position, uh, again, across formats. Uh, what if a team loses early wickets? Who have they got in coming at number seven or number eight? Who might be able to rescue them? Um, have they got the right balance between bat and ball? Um, that's really important in T20. So know your team lineups. Um, how many bowlers have they got? Have they got four, four absolute gun bowlers or have they got four gun bowlers and you know, a complete no-hoper or part-timer uh, for number five and number six, if if need be. So know your team lineups, and also the other third, the other thing to do is um, try to sort of use the crystal ball and ask yourself, well, if I've had a bet on this team at these odds, um, what's what what are the odds going to be if they're thirty for three, and what have they got to come in their batting? line up uh, and try to work out whether you're you're going to be happy with that position or not before you before you have a bet i mean that seems to be a lot of do's i've said there william but um i suppose <clears throat> the advice the, the advice would be don't don't just bet on uh, a player's reputation uh, or how many big name players a team has got particularly in franchise t20 cricket that's a that's a big don't 
Absolutely. And I think um, a really great way to end this betting people. Um, Ed, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, William. And thank you very much for watching. Um, stay tuned for more great guests in the week to come. Star Sports TV, our weekly magazine TV programme packed with tips, news and banter on the key sports events of the week. Check out the latest episode at starsportsbet.co.uk. Begambleaware.org. Over 18 only.